There is something that every marriage needs to be healthy. There is something that every athletic team needs to win games. There is something every business needs to be successful. There is something every family needs to be strong. And that something is unity. Unity. To achieve unity, it is imperative that the multiplicity of individuals within a group, that they work together, that they understand what the common objective is, what the common goal is, what the common focus is. In college, Casey and I were part of a Mexico missions trip. And uh, I was uh, a sophomore, she was a freshman, and we went on this trip for our Easter break. And we went down just south of Tijuana. We had about, I would say, 80 people on this trip. It's a good group of college students. And we went down in uh, as, as kind of like three teams. Two of the teams were going down with the express purpose of building a home. We were going down to build a home for two uh, poor Mexican families. The other team was going to serve in a medical mission. And they were going to bring supplies and treat some of the children and help at this clinic. And together, we were a very united team. We went down there. We had had months of preparation. We had planned together. We had prayed together. We had studied together. And we were ready to go. We were united. And then we got down there. And the first few days, we were going strong. We were building this home. We were laying the foundation. The, the folks at the clinic were helping these children and, and were, were touching their, their, their sicknesses and whatnot and giving them medication. And it was a great experience up until about Wednesday, about halfway through the week. And all of a sudden, while we're out in our tents sleeping that night, what do you think happened? It rained. Oh my, did it rain. I mean, we're not just talking a sprinkle, okay? We are in tents on dirt in Mexico and it starts to absolutely pour. Cats and dogs. I mean, it is raining buckets right now. And we wake up in the morning and everything is absolutely soaked. Our tents are soaked, our clothes are soaked, our supplies are soaked, our food is soaked. Everything you could possibly imagine is wet. What do you think that did to our team unity? Well, I'd like to say that we held together in that time of turmoil. I'd like to say that we said, oh, that, this is just fine and dandy, we can handle it. But the truth is that did not happen. While some were still focused on their objectives, some were still focused on building that home, some were still focused on going to that clinic, but many others in the team started to get cranky. Some started to get sick. Others became downright upset and wanted to go home. By the end of the trip, a united team that had left California had become completely disunited and in utter disarray. All because we had lost our focus. My title today is to achieve unity, focus on the gospel. To achieve unity, focus on the gospel.
And this message, while Paul means it to apply to the church, I think it's very safe to say that this message doesn't just apply to the church. It applies to your marriage. It applies to your family. It applies to your business. It applies to the small groups that you are a part of. It applies to the people that you are estranged to today. Maybe a friend whom you have been estranged with for many years now. This message, what Paul has to say in Philippians 1.27, applies to that today. So I want you to turn there. Philippians 1, we're going to start in verse 27. We're going to go through chapter 2, verse 4. Let's read it. Paul, the Apostle Paul says this, Philippians 1, 27 to 2, 4. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and here now, and now here is in me. Therefore, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray right now that you would help us, Father, to tune into your word. We would be mindful of the message that your Holy Spirit wants to give us. We'd be attentive to the study of your word, that we would take it. And use it so that we might be united as a church, united as married couples, united as families, united as friends. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's start in verse 27. Paul says this, Only let your conduct, your conduct, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, as we know, we've been going through Philippians for some time now. Paul's in prison. He's on house arrest. He's writing to a church that he has formed. He has developed this church in the Lord. And he's giving them some words of encouragement, some words of admonishment. And he's just come off saying, hey, I I may die, but I, I anticipate living on. Though I'm in prison and though I'm under trial and I, and death appears to be imminent, I have faith and I have confidence that I will live on and will continue to minister and to be with you. 
But now he's going to say in verse 27, but whether or not that happens, whether or not I am present with you or whether or not I am absent with you, this is what I want you to do. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word only there means this is of utmost importance. Listen carefully here. This might remind us of Ephesians 4.1 where it says, Walk worthy of the calling you have received. And that word conduct, that word conduct there in Greek, we see it up on the screen, okay? The word there is polytuste, okay? Polytuste. Now, I put that word up there to play a little game here. What words do you and I see in this word that come into English? Does anybody shout it out if you have a word there that, that you can see? What? Polite? I heard polite. What else? What else? Political? Did I hear political? What else? Police? Who said police? Nobody said police? I thought I heard police. All right, look at, look at the first three we got here. That's right, political, police, and polite. All right, we see these words here. And, that, that, and believe it or not, this word actually has somewhat of a meaning with all of these words. Uh, but there's one word in particular that we may not be too aware of because it's, it's certainly not a common word, but it's the word polis. Polis, like metropolis, like city. Okay, city. Now, this word, polytuste, is a verb in Greek, and it has the idea of living as a citizen. It has political connotations. It has city connotations, but it also has polite connotations and somewhat of a policing kind of connotation. It means to live worthy, to live in such a way that it is, you're being a good citizen. You're being a good citizen. A good citizen of the city. This is the word Paul used for the church at Philippi. And why does he use this word to describe how they're supposed to act and live as Christians? Because as we learned at the very start of this book, the town, the city of Philippi had just recently been granted Roman citizenship. In Latin, it was the Ius Italicum. It was the greatest honor Rome could bestow upon a city. Rome, in effect, had said, Philippi, though you are not within our boundaries, we designate you as a special city of Rome, a special colony of the Roman Empire. They were granted citizenship. These people were very understanding and very appreciative of the responsibilities and yet the privileges of citizenship. And so Paul uses a word here, this word conduct, to emphasize the fact that they are to continue to be good citizens, not only for Rome, but now for Christ. For Christ. And then he says this. He says, stand fast. He says, whether I come to see you or am absent, I hope to hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, Ray Lupine brought out in his uh, beach night a number of, of weeks ago, he said it's interesting in scriptures, we're never told to fight against the, the forces of evil. We're never told to fight against Satan. We're actually told to stand fast. Stand fast against the wiles of the devil, Ephesians 6. Here again, Paul's saying, I want you to hold your ground. Hold your ground. The fight is coming. Stand fast. You don't need to go on the offensive. You need to stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Ephesians 6.11 And what are we standing for? We're standing for the faith. 
of the gospel in yellow. The faith of the gospel. In this context, the faith has to do with the Christian beliefs. The Christian creed. What we teach in the Word of God. The faith. We are to stand for the teachings of Christ as believers. Which get their power in the gospel. The faith of the gospel. Our faith, our belief system, what we believe, our creed as Christians, is empowered by the fact that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again, conquering death and sin that you and I through faith in Him might have eternal life. That gives power to our faith. In what manner are we to stand? In what manner are we to stand? Look at the next slide here. Notice how he says, he says, in one spirit with one mind striving together. In one spirit with one mind striving together. You know, we see one, one, and then striving together. Actually, that striving together also has the concept of being one. It has to do with working together or struggling together or competing together. It actually has some some sort of athletic or even battlefield connotations. He's saying struggle together as one. How are we to stand for the faith? We are to be united in our efforts to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. United. Well, we're going to find out a little bit more about what the purpose of this unity is in just a minute. Take a look at verse 28. What is the purpose of this unity? Well, Paul goes on to say, And I don't want you to be terrified by your adversaries. Verse 28. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. First, the words perdition and salvation. Uh, the word perdition here, uh, I think it's safe to say this. This does probably, Paul has more of a Jewish concept in mind, literally just death versus life, perdition versus salvation. But I think he also is looking toward the end. I think he is looking toward a more of a, an eternal perspective here. If you'll look a little bit later on in Philippians 3, he speaks of unbelievers as having uh, whose God is their belly and their end is destruction. The end of their days is destruction or perdition. And so it seems safe to say that this is with a view to eternity, but also in the present. So we can say here very clearly that we are not to be terrified by our adversaries, by our opponents, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. That is, they are receiving a sign that they will be destroyed. They are receiving a sign that they will be destroyed. By what? We'll find out in a minute. And we are receiving a sign that we will be saved. We are receiving a sign that we will go on to eternal life. But here's the key word. It's the word which. Which. This is a reflexive pronoun, excuse me, a relative pronoun. And I know, I, I believe me, I can't stand grammar, but you just got to bear with me. This, there's one instance of grammar here in, in this particular text that we've got to understand clearly. And it is this word which. As a relative pronoun, this word applies to something prior to it, and it connects the two phrases. The interesting thing about this word, though, is that in Greek, it's a feminine pronoun and it's a singular pronoun. Okay, it's a feminine pronoun and a singular pronoun. That means it needs to apply to a feminine and singular noun. All right? Trust me on this. I know. 
You might be going, okay, you lost me. It's a feminine pronoun and a singular pronoun. It must apply to a feminine and singular noun, most likely. Well, guess what? The last feminine singular noun is the word faith. Take a look. We already got it up there. That you stand for the faith of the gospel, which to them is a proof of perdition. So let me be very clear. It's not the fact that we're terrified, that we're not terrified by our adversaries that is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. That's not the sign. The sign is that you and I stand fast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we stand fast for the faith, the belief system of Christianity. That is the sign to them of their perdition and of our salvation. Now, that begs the question. That begs the question. Or, uh, the next question, how does unity accomplish this? How does unity accomplish this? If, in fact, our standing fast for the faith is a sign to them of perdition and a sign to us of salvation, how does our unity accomplish that? How does our standing fast accomplish that? That doesn't... Does that seem to jive? Here's my thoughts on this. When Christians truly unite, when Christians truly unite together with a common bond and a common focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, tremendous things happen. Tremendous things happen. I spoke last week of the story of my father-in-law whose mother was healed of her heart condition. She would attribute it to her son's prayer. Tremendous things happen. In our church today, we have Stella Eichner, who is a beloved member, who a while back the doctor said there's not much hope for your cancer situation. And today her cancer is in remission. Tremendous things happen through Christian unity and prayer. Through Christian unity, the poor, the sick, those with maladies, others come alongside them and supply for their needs. Those who are without shelter are given help. Those who are without food are given something to eat. All people, young, old, rich, poor, and the outcasts of society are loved and cared for when Christians unite together. Tremendous things happen. And unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, what do they do? They inevitably begin to see this outpouring, this abundant outpouring of love and support for one another that, that they see in our community. And then they begin to think, why are these people so different? Why are they so different than me? And then we answer them, it's because we believe in Jesus Christ. It's because... The Holy Spirit of God is within us and is working in mighty and tremendous ways to love and care for you because we've been loved and cared for by Jesus Christ. Why is Christian unity a sign of perdition to those who do not know Christ? Because upon witnessing our grace-filled conduct, they begin to think, this community has something that I am lacking. And if I don't figure out what it is, I fear I may be making a terrible, terrible mistake. And it is a terrible mistake to go through life without considering the veracity and the power found 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you fear you are making that mistake today, I urge you to not waste another minute. That You can become a child of God today through faith in Jesus Christ. But sadly, unbelievers are not always impressed to follow Christ on account of our conduct, are they? In fact, I think very often the case may be that those who do not know Christ are actually persuaded all the more not to know Him based on the conduct of Christians. They are more repelled by our disunity then they are attracted by our unity. In the early 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi was the spiritual leader in India. He was a, uh, a Hindu. Am I correct on that? Yes, he was a Hindu. And Mahatma Gandhi was meeting with Christian missionaries at the turn of the century. and Well, no, excuse me, about the 30s, 1930s. And... He was asked by these Christian missionaries, they say, Gandhi, uh, would you mind answering some questions? Uh, We're trying to figure out how to spread Christianity in India. And Gandhi was receptive to it. He liked the teachings of Christ. He himself was not a believer, to, to my knowledge. But they asked him, Gandhi, what is hindering Christianity from being spread throughout the nation of India? Gandhi gave one word in response. He said, Christians. What is hindering the spread of Christianity in India, Gandhi? Christians. Christians are hindering the spread of Christianity. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? Is your conduct impeding an unbeliever from coming to Christ? Jesus says it's better that we tie a millstone around our neck and drown ourselves in the ocean than to cause a believer to stumble. How much more so to prevent an unbeliever from coming to know Christ? I ask us to pause and to consider, is there an unbeliever in my life who sees my conduct and is repelled and not attracted to Jesus Christ? But when we do unite, when we do unite, when we do strive together for the faith, Paul says a beautiful thing happens. Such unity and camaraderie proves yet again our very salvation. That sweet fellowship between each other serves as a glimpse, a glimpse of what we will experience when upon death we come into the arms of Jesus Christ for eternity. Our unity demonstrates our salvation just as much as it demonstrates the perdition of those who do not know Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted, Paul says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. That word granted in yellow. It has been granted. It's in the passive. That means it's been, it's been granted to you. And it actually the word has to do with, it's a gracious privilege. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege. It's an honor to have this opportunity. 
I want to make it very clear, and here's some theology for the day. This is something I want you to know theologically from this text. Paul is not saying, he's not saying here that God gave you belief in Christ. Let me say that again. Paul is not saying that God gave you belief in Christ or gave you faith in Christ. If that were true, then it would also be true that God gave or caused your suffering, which is something the scriptures do not attest to. God is not the giver of suffering, much like he doesn't tempt us or does not bring evil to us. So let it be clear. Paul is not saying that God has given us faith. Rather, he is saying that God has given us the opportunity, that God has bestowed upon us the privilege, that God has given us the honor to exert faith in him, in his son, Jesus Christ. And this is a very, very critical distinction. I won't go into why it's so critical. You can make, maybe we can discuss that later. But this is a critical point of theology that Christians dispute about. I'll admit that freely. I have friends who would dispute what I just said. Uh, but I think that the scriptural evidence is much more to the contrary. Uh, that salvation by God's grace is a gift, but that we ourselves are the ones who believe for it. We are the ones who exert faith. Bob Wilkins said something very pointedly to this effect about this, about this text in 129. He said this. He said, we are not forced to believe, excuse me, we are not forced to suffer any more than we are forced to believe. We are given the opportunity to suffer for Christ, just as we were given the opportunity to believe in Him. And so in returning to verse 29, next slide, God has given you the opportunity to one, believe in Christ, and to two, Suffer for Christ. Suffer for Christ. On your outline, on the flip side, you'll also notice I've given you a, a web page link. You can check that out if you have more questions about this concept that I just discussed. It's a great article. Unfortunately, it's about 30 pages long. So uh, get your reading glasses out if you'd like to read it. It's by Rene Lopez, and it will help you uh, understand that aspect of theology a bit, bit more further. Okay, God has given us the opportunity to believe in Christ and to suffer for his sake. And notice here now, suffer for his sake. Uh, this is also very interesting how Paul words this. He actually says, on behalf of Christ, which actually is more, more the idea of in Christ's stead or on Christ's behalf. In other words, Christ is now with the Father in heaven and you and I are now the sufferers. We are now the ones who, though Christ suffered on the cross, and that was the most excruciating pain and suffering of anyone on this earth, Paul is saying now you and I are suffering on behalf of Christ. We are the ones suffering for His sake, and it's a privilege to do so. And it's an honor to do so. It doesn't diminish at all the suffering of the cross, but what it does do is it gives us the opportunity to identify all the more further with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity. You've been bestowed the opportunity to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw, excuse me, which, uh, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul here is just referencing back in uh, Acts 16. You can read about Paul's uh, conflict in Philippi when he was starting this church. He says, hey, you remember the conflict we dealt with back then and now you know I'm in prison. He says, recognize that that conflict is an opportunity. It is a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. 
chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, in light of this, in light of all of this, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Stop right there. I'll I'll hold his sentence mid-thought. The the words if here uh, are actually could be translated since. Uh, in In the context, Paul is saying that if this happens, but in Greek, the implication is, and yes, it does happen. If this happens, and it most certainly does happen, it most certainly has occurred here in this community at Philippi, Look what he's saying here. He's saying, since, since, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy. Now, it is a little bit difficult to determine who is doing what in this verse, but let me just run through it really quickly. The word consolation there is the idea of exhortation. And with the word exhortation, it's always from the human perspective. It's actually the human person, the preacher, or the teacher giving admonishment, encouragement, exhortation to the people in Christ. The preacher gives encouragement and admonishment, and he does, it, he does so by, by relying on the words of Christ. And so that phrase, if there is any consolation in Christ, probably has more to do with, Christ, with Paul's Christ-centered encouragement to the Philippians. All right. The second one, if there's any comfort of love, now here again, that word comfort there is used almost, almost exclusively to imply human comfort, not comfort from God. And so Paul twice here is now saying, if you've received Christ-centered encouragement from me, and if you've received comforting love from me, and you have received those things. The third, he goes on to say, if you've received fellowship, fellowship of the Spirit, or we could say fellowship from the Spirit. Now here he starts to talk about the Lord, talk about God. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has supplied fellowship and community and has been the one who has generated this church at Philippi. He's saying if you've received that fellowship, that mutual sharing between you and God, the Spirit, and you have received that, he says, since you have received that. And finally, affection and mercy. And these words are most likely used from God. Tender mercies you often hear in the Scriptures. So God's affection and mercy, since you've received this from the Father, first two, more of the human element, the last two, more of the divine element, Paul's saying, since you've received these, then, look at verse 2, verse 2. He says, fulfill my joy. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul's using four phrases here, and he's saying the exact same thing. He's using four phrases, and he means the same thing with all four of them. The first, be like-minded. This doesn't have the idea of... uh, Next slide there. This doesn't have the idea of a matter of opinion, but rather that that we would be united in opinions, that we have all the same preferences, all the same thought processes, that we go through life and we just think everything absolutely the same. No, that's not the case. But rather the idea here is unity in our understanding of each other. Unity in our thought process as we consider one another. 
Be of the same mind, Paul says. Of the same mind. He says, I want you to think cohesively. Work as a team. Secondly, having the same love. Having the same love. This is love that shows no partiality. No partiality. It's love to everyone. Showing love to everyone. Thinking the same. Loving the same. Third, be of one accord. This has the notion of being one in spirit. Being harmonious. Being together. Being united. Saying the same thing here. And finally, look, he brings it full circle. He goes back to the idea of mind. He says, be of one mind. Be of one mind. That, that is to say, be one in purpose. Thinking as one. All of this comes full circle. It is the idea of unity. Verse 1, if you've received my Christ-centered encouragement, if you've received my comforting love, if you've received fellowship from the Holy Spirit of God, if you've received affection and mercy from the Father, and you have received all these things, since you've received them, Unite. Unite together. In light of all those, unite. Fulfill my joy. Be together. Be united. Paul was keenly aware, keenly aware that a proper view of the Gospel was not going to perpetually be in the mind of believers. He knew that at times there would be distractions. He knew that unity would often turn to disunity in these newly formed churches and in churches today. It would develop subtly. Someone would become disruptive to the body. Someone would act out of pride and self-centeredness. Jealousy would creep in. Then came gossip. Soon enough, believers covered by the blood of Jesus Christ were bickering and fighting with one another over the most futile elements of life. In such cases, a focus on the gospel was nowhere to be found. Friends, we kid ourselves to assume that our church is immune to such maladies. We kid ourselves to assume we are immune to such pettiness. We will fail at times. I will fail at times. And most certainly, other people will fail us. But friends, it is precisely those moments in time. It is precisely those moments in time when others fail us or when we fail them. When we are the recipients of a cross eye, when we are the recipients of a harsh word, when we are the recipients of a slander on our character, when we are the recipients of a baseless rumor about us, friends, it is precisely those times Paul says, don't bite back. Take a moment of pause. Hear the Holy Spirit within you who says, love them in spite of what they've done to you. Because Jesus did the same for you. Love them in spite of what they've done to you. Because Jesus did the same for you. Love them in spite of what they've done to you. 
Because Jesus did the same for you. Focus on the gospel. And the cares and the pettiness of this world will go away. So Paul warns in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Gives a negative followed by a positive. Nothing was to be done out of selfish ambition. Same word used in verse 17 of this chapter. Excuse me, of the last chapter. Referred to the preachers who had selfish ambition and were jealous of Paul. The word conceit has the concept of thinking you are right when you are not. That never happens to me. Thinking you are right when you are not. Boy, how often, how often. Don't be ambitious on your own account. Don't be conceited. Don't think you're right when in fact you are wrong. But in lowliness of mind, only time used, actually the first time this word is used in all of the Greek language. This word is nowhere to be found in all of the ancient Greek poetry and writings. For the very first time, Paul uses this word. Lowliness of mind, we translate it. Lowliness of mind. It has the idea of humility. And the reason why it wasn't used in ancient Greek is because they looked at humility as a vice, not a virtue. Humility meant you were poor. Humility meant you were to be, you were degraded, that you were base, that you were base and that you were nothing of value. To be lowly of mind, it was just they didn't want to even want to speak of this in their writings. But Paul uses it as a virtue, as the highest virtue. And to esteem, to esteem others better than ourselves. This means to calculate, to reckon it, to think about all of the issues that we've been thinking of today and to realize, wow, that's right. Others are better than me. That's what this word implies. It means to carefully weigh the facts. Well, weigh the facts, what I've said today. Weigh the facts of the Word of God. And what you should come to is the reckoning, the calculation that others are better than you. Chapter 2, verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The idea of look out now is more of the active. He's saying find out what you can do for them. Look out for their interests. Consider what it is you can do on behalf of them. Don't just esteem them as better than you. Look out for them. Take an interest in them. Concern yourselves with them. Of course, Paul's now going to lead into verse 5, which we will meet next week, and that is the great and beautiful passage about the humility of Christ. And he's going to use that as the epitome. The epitome of humility. But what can we learn today? What can we learn as we stop now and go to our time of application? First is this. I want you to know a theological point. And I don't want it to dissuade from everything else, but this is important to me. This is important to the Word of God. Theological point, number one here, God does not bestow belief or faith in a person. Salvation by God's grace is a gift, but the person must believe for that gift. That is critical to know and to comprehend. And I urge you to read that article if you have any questions or speak with me about it. Speak with an elder about it. Secondly, and this is more practical, 
our unity as believers, our unity is grounded first and foremost on the belief, on the basis of our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are united because we are believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Period. That's where it starts. And quite frankly, that's where it ends. That's where it starts and ends. The reason why you and I unite is because of Jesus Christ. The hope within us. Put aside the pettiness. Put aside the things of this earth that truly don't matter. Number three, when the gospel takes preeminence, I've said this about three times now, but it's, it's on the mind of Paul throughout this book. When the gospel takes preeminence in your life, your unbelieving friends will experience a growing awareness that you possess something of infinite value, that you are a child of God. It is a sign to them of their perdition. And certainly we don't mean to... Uh, certainly Paul's not meaning to, to uh, speak ill of them as if he desires their perdition. That's not the case. He's saying it will persuade them that they're missing something, that they're on the wrong track. If you and I unite and the gospel is of utmost importance to you and I, others will be persuaded to take a look at the Word of God and to take a look at this thing called Christianity. And four, this is tough language here, you are more important than me. What can I do for you? I used big words to communicate this point. You are more important than me. What can I do for you? That's, uh, that's three and four in a nutshell. Let that, be, let that be on your hearts and minds as you leave this room. Others are more important than you. I mentioned that this message not only pertains to the church, but to your marriage, to your friends, to those who you, whom you are estranged to, to your business, to your family life. Friends, this, this message is critical that you apply 